may be seated. You will learn what you believe about God on your darkest day. That you won't learn the nature of your faith on the mountaintop. You won't learn the nature of your faith and the character of your faith when life is good and life is easy. No, you will learn the nature of your faith when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You will learn the nature of your faith when you hold fast to the goodness of God even though your life isn't very good. You will learn the nature of your faith as you continue calling out to the Lord, trusting in the Lord, trusting in His control even though it feels like your life is unraveling around you. You will learn the nature of your faith as you call out to God and seem to receive back silence, yet you continue to go to Him again and again and again, trusting in His sufficient power, trusting in His proven goodness. This morning we're going to be seeing the journey of a woman, the life of a woman, who Jesus honors her faith. And her journey, her life is really a remarkable one, one that many of you will be able to relate to. And by looking at her life, we will learn so much about the character of faith, the kind of faith that is God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and life Altering. Would you turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 15? Matthew chapter 15. This morning we're gonna, Jesus is retreating away from Genesaret. He is retreating away from the region of Galilee to begin a new season of ministry in a region that is a bit uh, a bit suspicious to those who understand what's happening. So would you stand with me as we prepare to read God's word? together. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 15. We're going to begin in verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant word. This morning you may be seated. This morning we come to a story that is really a remarkable one. And it is remarkable on a couple of different levels. The first reason that this is a remarkable story is because of the woman that approaches Jesus. As I told you, Jesus has retreated from Galilee, thus leaving the land that was predominantly Jewish to go to the land of Tyre and Sidon. Now, if you've been walking with us through Matthew for a while, what you've remembered is is that when Jesus was ministering in Nazareth, they take Jesus to the county line and say, Brother, don't let the sun set on you over here again. 
You get out of here. Don't come back. We don't want you. Jesus has been ministering even in recent days in the region of Galilee in a city called Gennesaret. And there the, the Jews send a contingency of Pharisaical leaders from Jerusalem, officials, and they go to Jesus to tell him that he is essentially not welcome, that his teaching is undermining the law of God. And so Jesus now is retreating to what the Bible tells us is the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now what you need to understand is if you've read, some, so many of you right now, you're reading through the prophets, right? Or you're going to be reading through the prophets and you're reading through the Bible in a year class that we have. And you wonder sometimes, like, why do I need to read Ezekiel? Like, how am I going to keep pressing on in Ezekiel? But if you'll remember, for those of you who have read it, that one of the regions that God often speaks of when he speaks of judgment, when he speaks of condemnation, is the region of Tyre and Sidon. He does it in Isaiah. He does it in Ezekiel, right? And so those cities were so renowned, those cities were so infamous for their pagan wickedness, that they are made and used as an example of the kind of place that God will destroy. They are used as an example of the kind of place that God will rain down his judgment and wipe from the earth. Now Jesus has been rejected in Nazareth, his hometown. Jesus has been rejected in Galilee from the Jews. But in the region of Tyre and Sidon, what happens? A woman comes to him. A woman comes to him. Not just any old woman though, a Canaanite woman. You know who the Canaanites are? The Canaanites are the long-standing enemy of the people of God. The Canaanites had the promised land that the Lord gave to the children of Israel when he delivered them from Egypt. And they had always been uh, used by the enemy as a lure away from the Lord God. That the Canaanites were always uh, a distraction to the people of God, calling them away from faithfulness to God. Calling them toward their prosperity and away from the Lord's provision and protection and presence. And here we have a Canaanite woman calling out to Jesus in a region that is wi famously wicked, saying, Oh, son of David! Oh, son of David! Have mercy on me! It's a remarkable term to be used. The Jews rejected him. The Jews were taking him to the county line. And here it is, a Canaanite woman in a wicked city crying out to Jesus in the very terms that are used by the Jews to describe their Messiah. Now they would have understood it from the Pharisees, but that didn't happen. We would have expected this from the disciples, but that didn't happen. This comes from a Canaanite woman. Remarkable. The next remarkable part of our story is the response of Jesus and his disciples. He does not respond the way that we would come to expect Jesus to respond. In fact, how does Jesus initially respond to this Canaanite woman crying out in faith, Oh, son of David, have mercy on me. He ignores her. He ignores her. Matthew is sure to point out that Jesus does not answer her a word. 
He does not even act as though she has said anything at all. And we know that in the grammar, this is a a participle, that she is doing this over and over and over. This was not just one cry, but again and again and again. She's saying, have mercy on me, O son of David. Have mercy on me, O son of David. Have mercy on me, O son of David. And the more she cries out, the more it punctuates the silence of the Lord Jesus as he does not answer her a word. Instead, the disciples, they speak up and they say, Jesus, could you just send her away? She's driving us crazy. She's chasing after us. She's shouting at us. She's calling out at us. How are we supposed to have prayer and thought and contemplation in the midst of this? Like, Jesus, can you send her away? Now, there's a bit of debate by, about what they meant by that. Did they mean Jesus, like, literally just get rid of her as fast as possible because we don't want to hear her? Or did they mean by that Jesus heal her so that she will be on her way as quickly as possible? I, I tend to lean toward the latter, that, that they were calling on Jesus to heal her quickly. And I believe that based on Jesus' response in verse 24. Because in verse 24, what does Jesus do? He responds to them and he says, look, I didn't come for Canaanites. I, I, I didn't come for Gentile women. I came for the children of Israel. I came for the people of God. I am the Jewish Messiah sent to the children of Israel that they might be delivered from their wickedness. Now, as we've been reading through Matthew, this doesn't sound like the Jesus we've come to expect, does it? The, the Jesus that we've, respect, we've come to expect in Matthew is the Jesus that dines with sinners. The Jesus that we've come to expect in Matthew is the Jesus that whoever wants to come, whoever is weary, whoever is heavy laden can come to him and find rest, right? The Jesus that we've come to expect is a Jesus that is kind toward the outsider, kind toward the Roman centurion in, Rome, in uh, Matthew chapter 8. And yet here we have Jesus essentially rejecting this woman. How does she respond? How would you respond? If this were you, what are you doing? The disciples don't want you there. Jesus is ignoring you. He's speaking past you to talk to his disciples. You can hear everything that's going on. What are you doing? I'm probably going home. How does she respond? Matthew tells us that she kneels down in a posture of worship right in front of Jesus. And she cries, up, cries out to him in a prayer of desperation, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Again and again and again, Lord, help me. In a posture of submission, in a posture of worship, she responds back to the Savior that seems to be silent. And she says, Lord, I submit my life to you. Lord, I am in your hands. Lord, help me. She responds to what seems like silence and rejection with worship. Stunning. Remarkable. Jesus looks back to her and he says, Should I, is it right that I take the bread that is for the children and I throw it to the dogs? Now in the parable, do you understand who the dog is? The dog is the woman. The dog is the woman. 
right now, I just wonder if any of you have ever heard this passage preached before. Because this isn't easy. This isn't easy. If I'm going to teach you on faith and I'm not having to preach through Matthew, I'm not talking about this one. This is hard. Jesus calls her a dog. He calls her little girl that she's coming to plead with him on her behalf. He's calling her a dog. He's using what, what is a seemingly derogatory term to refer to her and her little girl and her mom and her dad and her husband if she has one and all of her people and all of her ancestors. He says, is it right that I give you what is meant for the children of Israel and you're a dog? Now this is where we need more than just this passage, right? The passage stops right there. We have a low view of Jesus. We don't really even know what to make of Jesus, but the passage doesn't stop there. This woman, you realize, can read body language that we can't read when we're reading this. She can hear the tone with which Jesus is speaking that, that we can't hear as we read the text. And this woman knows that this is not an unconcerned man. This is not an uncaring man. This is not a man that is turning her away. She hears in his voice. She sees in his body language that there is something in him that is loving toward her, kind toward her. And so she responds back to what seems to be derogatory. And she says, I don't care. I will be the dog. I am the dog. But you are my master. And you are a kind master. Just let me have the crumbs. Just let me have the scraps from your table. And that will be enough for me. And Jesus says, remarkable faith. Remarkable faith. You see, this woman had insight that all of Israel had seemed to have missed. She understood, yes, the Messiah was going to the Jews first, but the Messiah given to the Jews was going to be a blessing to the whole world. And so just as with the faith of the centurion in Matthew 8, we come to Matthew chapter 15, and we have the faith of a Canaanite woman. The only two peoples, you realize, in all of the book of Matthew up until this point, whose faith has been commended by the Lord Jesus, are Gentile pagans. Jesus looks and he says, great is your faith. And from a distance, the only other time this happened, when? Matthew 8, the servant of the centurion. Jesus heals without even going and touching the girl. He says, instantly. She was delivered from the demons that were oppressing her. And she was, in fact, brothers and sisters, delivered from the grip of hell itself. Now, why is it? that Matthew would include this in his, his gospel. Remember I told you as we come to study the Bible, the question that we need to often ask ourselves is, or every time ask ourselves is, is why did this author include this passage to this audience? And Matthew writing to a Jewish Christian audience is intending to shock them to their core. That you are not going to learn faith by looking at the Pharisees. In fact, right here, the Faith of the disciples themselves is suspect at best. You want to see faith? Go to the Canaanite woman. You want to see faith? Go to the Roman soldier. You want to see faith? That's what faith is. And so he's intending to shock us to our core to realize it has nothing to do with our heritage. It has nothing to do with where we come from. It has nothing to do with anything that seems to be redeemable in us. Faith, it only has to do with whether or not you have offered yourself to the Lord. 
And so looking at this Canaanite woman, I want us to learn some about the nature of faith. The nature of faith that is life-saving, God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, life-altering. I think we see from the Canaanite woman this faith that, that Jesus commends, this faith that like the Roman centurion, he marvels at. I think we see three different characteristics of her faith that I want us to look at this morning. And I want all of us to take our faith and lay beside these characteristics to see if that's what we have, if that's what it looks like. The first characteristic of this woman's faith that stands out is that it is a desperate faith. It is a desperate faith. This woman is in a moment of crisis. This woman is at literally the lowest moment of her entire life. Her little girl is possessed by demons. Her little girl is unwell physically. Her little girl is unwell spiritually. Her little girl is unwell emotionally. Everything in this woman's life, everything in that which she loves so dearly, is totally unraveling around her. She has no ability to think through it, no ability to cope. She can't fix it herself. And you know the truth is, I don't really know how old the woman's daughter is, but I can tell you, no matter if she's 10, 20, 30, or 40, this is her little girl. This is her little girl. That's how we are with our children, isn't it? It doesn't matter how old they get. That's our little girl. That's our little boy. My mom, when I was in the hospital for six consecutive days, my mom slept in a chair that sat straight upright. I'm a 30-year-old man with a wife and two kids, but I was her little boy. And she made sure that I was okay. That's what we see in the life of this mom. She's at the end of her rope. And so it says that she comes out to where Jesus is. Jesus is most likely at this point outside of the region of Tyre and Sidon on the outskirts of town. And from everything that I've read, it says that this woman would have had to have walked right past a temple of healing. A temple in which there was a a false god, a pagan god of healing. The god of her people where she would have been able to to take her her daughter and offer her up to be helped and delivered by this pagan god. And yet this woman and walks right past her, miles, no doubt, outside of town, at great cost and great exhaustion to herself, probably without a bite of food to eat and not even sure if she'd find water to go out and to find Jesus because this woman was desperate. He was her only hope. He was her only chance. And so you can hear the desperation in her voice when she prays the prayer of desperation. Many of you have prayed the prayer of desperation. It's when you pray and you can't utter very many words. It's when you pray and you hardly have enough oxygen in your lungs to make an audible sentence. And so you fall on your face before the Lord and you cry out, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. I can't say more, I can't say it prettier, I can't say it better, I can't be more eloquent. Lord, help me. I bet many of you were saved in moments of crisis. I bet many of you came to Christ in a moment in which you got all the way to the end of your rope and you had nowhere else to look and you had nowhere else to turn and you had nothing else to do. The old preachers used to say that man's extremity is God's opportunity. 
Lig Duncan says it like this, that the day of our affliction is very often our hour of grace. You see, desperation puts us in our proper place. Until we are desperate, we will believe that we are smart enough. Until we are desperate, we will believe that we can fix our problems. Until we are desperate, we will not look to the Lord. We will look deeper inside of ourselves until at the point we get to the so deep inside of ourselves that we find that there is nothing in there more than a desert. Nothing in there more than our own man-made foolishness, our own man-made logic that has proven itself inadequate, insufficient, and unable to help us in any way. We will try when we are miserable and unhappy. We will go and we will try a new job and we will try a new man and we will try new clothes and we will try a new car and we will try a new education and we will try a new this and a new that and a new this and a new not that. Looking deeper inside of ourselves, trying to fix it until we get to the end of our rope and realize all of it was pointless. All of it was hopeless. All of it was powerless to help us overcome what we have been searching for. And so we get to the end of our rope where all we can do is saying, Lord, would you help me? Lord, I have nowhere else to turn. I have nowhere else to go. I have no one else to talk to. I can't call anybody else. I don't have another dollar to spend. I don't have another degree to get. I don't have another relationship to find. Lord, I'm at the end. You are all I have. Christian, do you understand that you are to live your life in the posture of desperation? Do you understand that? In our minds, I think you hear me say that, that you got to a moment of desperation and that's when God saved you. And then you think, well, well, then life all got better. Like Then I don't have to be desperate for God. That is not the New Testament picture of the Christian life. The New Testament picture of the Christian life is when you live in moment by moment desperation for Jesus. That you live your life so that if Jesus doesn't come through, you will be a failure. You live your life with your money. You live your life with your time. You live your life with your family. You live your life with every resource, talent, and ability that God has given you. And you pour it out as a blank check to the Savior. And you say, Jesus, here's everything that I have. I'm going to do that, which I know I can't do. And if you don't come through, I will fall down and die. The Christian life is about moment by moment. Desperation, moment by moment, dependency on Christ to come through for you again and again and again so that you can point back and say, you know, I was desperate then and that was the hour of grace. And I was desperate then and that was the hour of grace. And I was desperate then and that is the hour of grace. Listen to me, brothers and sisters, that is a faithful Savior. That is a God that will always sustain. That is a God that will always provide. That is a God that will always deliver. That is a God that will always come through, come to him. This morning, that is the picture of the life that we are to offer up to the Lord Jesus. Is that not what we see in the Canaanite woman? Is that not what we see in the Canaanite woman? Again and again and again and again, being desperate for Jesus to supply her need. Now some of you this morning, you're like sweet Lenora was last night. You've never been desperate enough for him. All of your life, you've been baptized, maybe you've been to church a lot, maybe. 
but all of your life you've just looked deeper inside of yourself. All of your life you've just said, well, I've just got to try a little bit harder. I've just got to do a little bit better. I just need another job. I just need another promotion. I just need another advancement. I just need another family. I just need another kid. I just need another this and another that and another this. And what you have found this morning is all of that leaves you hungry and thirsty. None of that can satisfy you more than a fleeting second. And this morning you are desperate. Can I tell you that desperate has fi- desperation has finally put you in your proper place? When you are finally at the end of yourself and you realize that you aren't smart enough and you aren't good enough and you aren't awesome enough and you aren't wise enough and you aren't educated enough and you aren't rich enough and you aren't good looking enough. Like you can't put all of that away and put it down in a moment of desperation saying, Jesus, let me bow before you and put my life in your hands. Let me bow before you in submission and say, Lord, help me. Not just right now, Lord, help me forever. Lord, deliver me from my foolish ways. Lord, deliver me from my baddest of sin. Lord, deliver me from my own self-righteousness. Deliver me from all of it that I might be right with you, that I might live in moment by moment dependency on you, moment by moment relationship with you. This morning, if that's you, would you come to Jesus? If that's you this morning, would you come to Jesus? Would you come to the Savior that will not turn you away no matter how wicked your sin, but instead will marvel at your faith and celebrate it in the kingdom of God? Are you desperate this morning? Good. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Come to Christ and be, have your feet put on solid ground. Come to Christ and find the well that will not run dry. Come to Christ. Not only do we see in this woman a desperate faith, but we see in this woman a persistent faith. We see in her a persistent faith. And I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed throughout the week, throughout the weekend, that the Lord might use this characteristic of this woman's faith to encourage some of you. So she cries out to Jesus, and Jesus does not answer. Does that sound like your prayer life, maybe? She cries out to Jesus with an urgent plea, with a plea that is good and right and honorable, that her daughter would be made well, and Jesus does not respond by with a word. I wonder if that describes some of your prayer lives this morning. The disciples turn her away. Jesus speaks past her, and she only gets on her face, persisting still, saying, Lord, help me. Jesus, in a parable, insinuates that she's a dog and she only goes farther still, persisting still, persevering still. Lord Jesus, you are my only hope. Lord Jesus, you are all that I have. Lord Jesus, you are all that I want. If I am a dog, amen, you are a kind master. Lord Jesus, would you help me? She wouldn't go because the disciples wanted her to go. She wouldn't go because Jesus didn't seem to answer. She wouldn't go because Jesus didn't seem good. She wouldn't go because life was unraveling. She wouldn't go because her time was too valuable. She wouldn't go. She kept persisting that the Lord hear her. She kept insisting that he answer her and respond to her. She kept insisting that he was her only hope. True 
God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, life-altering faith is always defined by its persistence. By its persistence. See, I wonder how many of us, if we'd have been like this woman and we would have walked past the old temple out to town and we would have went to Jesus and Jesus would not have answered us a word if we would have said, well, I tried that. I gave that a shot. I gave the miracle worker in the desert a shot. I gave the Christian thing a shot. I'm still unhappy. My daughter's still not well. My marriage still isn't fixed. My dad's still sick. I'm giving up on that. I I tried it. I gave it a shot. And now I'm out. That's not faith. That's not faith. That's playing the lottery. That's not faith. That's taking a gamble. They say, I'm going to try some of this and some of this and some of this. This isn't my only hope. This is just option A right now. Faith is saying, Jesus, I have no other option. I have no other option. I have nowhere else to turn. I have nowhere else I want to turn. I'm going to keep coming to you again and again and again like the persistent widow so that eventually you just say, that woman needs me. That woman loves me. That woman trusts me. That woman is dependent on me and you will answer me. So I'm just going to keep coming. Your disciples can get annoyed. You can ignore me, but I'm going to keep on coming. Why is it that Jesus did not answer her immediately? Have you ever thought about that? When she first comes, Jesus is a busy man. Like, I know we all think we're busy. Like, we all think that we are, like, so busy. I was telling Megan, like, I'm just, I can't even, I can't keep up with my calendar. I'm so, it's just crazy. And, like, we all think we're busy. Jesus was healing cities, man. Jesus was discipling. He was teaching. He was eating at some point, bathing at some point. He was healing entire cities, hours upon hours. He would feed thousands of people. He would take care of his disciples in the midst of the storms. All the while, the Bible tells us that he is the glue that literally holds together the cosmos. So there's that. See, we think we're busy. Jesus is busy. Why would he not just answer her immediately, send her on on her way so that he could be about his ministry? You see, Jesus was not being unkind to the woman. Jesus was drawing out her faith. He was drawing out her faith. It's not faith. If you go to Jesus every time and you say, Jesus, I need blank, and he fills in the blank every time. It's not. That's no testimony. That's no story. That doesn't require any trust. That doesn't require any hope. That doesn't require any confidence. If Jesus answered every request that we bring to him every single time we bring them, as soon as we bring them, all of us would just be spoiled kids in a place that we probably wouldn't gather to begin with, thinking, well, that's what I'm entitled to. But when you persist and you live moment by moment, 
day by day, second by second, that Jesus, if he doesn't come through for this in my family, my family's going to collapse. If he doesn't come through for me on this, I'm going to collapse. Everything is going to unravel. And so I'm just going to keep going to him again and again and again and again. Then Jesus is drawing your faith out, drawing out your trust in him, drawing out your confidence in him that it might grow, that it might increase, that eventually you might have a testimony that you can look back and pray the good, good Father that supplied your need yet again. What is more glorious? What is more glorious? That you say, Jesus, give me a million dollars, and he gives you a million dollars? Or Jesus, if you don't provide for me tomorrow, I'm going to starve. And somehow, through the ordinary means of his providence, through the miraculous working of his grace, he sends to you a stranger you've never heard of, you've never met, doesn't even know your name, that comes and offers you a sandwich without you knowing. What's more glorious, church? What's going to provoke you to worship? That you can do this your way, by your wisdom, according to your good ideas, or that the Lord could go past all of that, pretending as though he is being silent, instead to answer in a way that is far more glorious, far more miraculous, that you could not have seen coming. Church, I can tell you firsthand that the times in my life that I tell, testify to the most are the times in which I thought God was silent, but in the end, he supplied my need in a way that only the divine creator providential author of the universe could do. So this morning, God is stretching your faith, and at the same time, he is increasing it. Faith is not grown on the mountaintops. Faith is forged when your trust and your hope persists in God. I wonder how many of you tonight, today, are having the Canaanite woman situation in your life. I want to get personal for just a minute. Some of you are praying, and you have prayed, and you have prayed, and you have prayed, and you have prayed, and it seems as though God is silent. Brothers and sisters, persist in your prayers. Persevere in your prayers. Let your grace, let your faith be strengthened in your prayers. Hope in the Lord, and your hope will not prove you a fool. With families, multiple families in our church right now, going through the processes of adoption, considering adoption and it's expensive and it sounds exciting and then you get in it and it starts pounding you in the head and there's curves and there's mountaintops and there's blind turns and you don't know where this money's going to come from and you don't know where where how this is going to work out you don't know how it's going to fit into your family how it's going to fit into your church how it's going to fit into your community is that not the perfect situation for the lord to do a great work is that not the perfect situation for the lord to do that which you can't calculate that which you can't expect, that which you can't predict? Is that not the perfect situation to give you a story to tell that is going to encourage the people of God for generations to come? Persist, brothers and sisters. Persist in your faith. Stand firm in your pleadings with God. Go to him again and again and again. Your wisdom is not enough for this situation. Persist in faith, that your life might be changed and that God himself might be glorified and not you and your family and your wisdom persist. Maybe some of you have been sharing the gospel. You've been sharing the gospel with your daddy. You've been sharing the gospel with your husband for decades and his heart still seems as hard now, if not harder, than it ever has been. 
You've been pleading with your children ever since they were young that they would come and follow the Lord, and yet they made the prodigal look modest. You've been talking with your neighbor. You've been talking with your wife. You've been talking with them again and again and again and again and again and again. They reject the gospel. Press on. Persist in your faith, brothers and sisters. Persist in sharing the hope that is found in Christ Jesus. Persist that the power of salvation is not in the eloquence of your words. The power of salvation is not in the beauty of your presentation. The power of, the sal- of salvation is in the gospel. And you cannot be ashamed. You must not be ashamed that the power of God might deliver their souls from the gates of hell. I think about people like Kathy Jacks. Right now, Kathy Jacks is getting ready to come home from Orlando, Florida, from yet another surgery. Since 2013, Kathy has had surgery after surgery after surgery after surgery. She went into the greatest season of her life as she expected. It has been nothing but one heartache and one struggle after another. And I can tell you, I can testify to you that that is a faithful woman of God. And I have prayed and I have talked to the Lord God myself. And I have told him, this doesn't make sense to me. And many of you are in a situation like Kathy, and you've taken one blow after another blow after another blow. And Romans 8, 28, that all things are going to work together for your good, it sounded good until the body shots kept coming in. I tell you the same thing that I would tell Kathy. As a loving shepherd, as someone that cares about you, press on. Persist in preaching the truth and the promises of God to yourself. Persist in believing that all things are going to work out for your good and for his glory. Persist. Do not give up. Do not quit. And let the Lord be glorified that your hope is in him, not in a healthy body. That your hope is in him, not in smooth circumstances. Your hope is in the Lord that he might be honored and glorified and blessed. You see, church, how persistent faith exalts Christ. You see, church, how persistent faith exalts Christ. It keeps on hoping. It keeps on proclaiming. It keeps on singing that Jesus is good and Jesus is willing and Jesus is true, even when it would be easier to back away and quit. How was she able to persist, this Canaanite woman? She was able to persist because her faith was not only a persistent faith, but a confident faith. A confident faith. How was it that she was able to hear his silence and yet keep calling out? How was it that she heard his response to the disciples and yet she came closer and bowed in worship? It was because she had a confident faith. She had confidence that Jesus really was mighty and powerful enough to deliver her. She had confidence that Jesus really was good enough that he would be willing to act upon her situation with his sovereign power. So this morning I ask you, Look at the train wreck that may be your life by those describing it from the outside looking in. Look at the misery of your hardship. Look at it right in the face. And ask yourself two questions. Is Jesus able and is Jesus willing? Is Jesus able 
And is Jesus willing? Do you have confidence that Jesus can? And do you have confidence that Jesus will? This is the nature of saving faith. This is the nature of transforming faith. This is the nature of faith that doesn't need the wisdom of the world, that does not need another self-help book, but just needs Jesus. Are you confident in him? This morning, if you are, in a minute, we're going to sing a song that we've sang often. And in the singing of that song, we're going to echo the prayer of this Canaanite woman. Lord, I need you. I need you. I believe that you are good. I believe that you are powerful. I believe that you love me. I cannot hear you. I cannot see you. I cannot feel you. But I believe. And I believe that you are almighty. And I believe that you are all loving. And so, Lord, right now, help me. I need you. I bow myself before you in humble worship, calling out to you with everything inside of me that you would do your work in me. So come. Come to the altar and get on your face before God in humble worship. Lift your hands and close your eyes to the Lord, crying out to him, Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. Reflect. Repent. Respond. Pray together. Heavenly Father, forgive us for how often our faith looks nothing like the faith of this Canaanite woman. Lord, we, we come to you as your children and we say, even though it is hard, and even though it is a struggle, and even though it is a battle, Lord, draw our faith out even in the midst of pain. Draw our faith out, even in the midst of desperation. Give us your story to tell. Do works in us that are so remarkable, so stunning, that it will hold together not just our faith, but the faith of our congregation and the faith of the generations to come after. We will persist in worshiping you. We will persist in crying out to you because we are your people. We are moment by moment desperate, dependent on you. In Jesus' name.